0: This is my first time rolling out a hay bale. Can you smell I'm it? I'm sort of loving it. Yeah, I can really smell it.
1: There are lots of ingredients which form the backbone of the way that I cook. Especially at this time of year, I'd be lost without some of them, whether it's celeriacs or carrots, you know, root vegetables, brassicas. But I think there's only one ingredient right now which every chef prides himself on having on the menu. It's banging season right now. It's a vegetable. You can only get it for maybe a couple of months of the year and it usually finds itself on the dessert list. Yeah, of course, I'm talking about rhubarb, but not any rhubarb, Yorkshire forced rhubarb. In this episode, I'm joined by food critic Jimmy Famawira as we celebrate the ultimate seasonal ingredient.
0: It works really nicely with the rhubarb, but still has the sharpness to it as well, but it's beautifully sweetened. It's really good.
1: My name is Tommy Banks, and this is my podcast, Seasoned. In every episode, we go behind the scenes at my restaurant, The Black Swan, and at the farm, where all our ingredients are grown. This truly is field to fork. It's March 15th, and this is Seasoned, Episode 4, Jimmy Famawira and Rhubarb. Before we begin, I want to say a thank you to our sponsors. This podcast is only possible because of True Foods. True Foods are an incredible family business who make the best stocks and sources. True Foods provide stocks to some of the best kitchens in the UK. One, two and three Michelin-style restaurants use their stocks as the base for their recipes. And now, their stocks and sources are available for you to buy at home too. I'll tell you more about them later in the episode, but you can check out their product range and find lots more information in our show notes. Well, it's been a strange week on the farm. We had snow, freezing temperatures, lots of wind, and that brings plenty of problems with it. At the farm, we've had to take extra care that the piglets are warm enough. And the Mangalitza pigs, which we moved out to the fields thinking winter was over, well it's a good job that they're covered in thick curly hair. They're nice and tough and they'll be fine. As for the Herdwick sheep, well they're used to the cold, nothing seems to faze them. The freezing temperatures has made foraging really difficult. Wild garlic has been something that's been very difficult to find, but we haven't had to take anything off the menu. Dicky and his team have been getting out in between the showers and they know where to look. It's very important that Callum and his team of chefs are totally flexible. And so if one ingredient does have to come off the menu, they always have an ingenious idea of how to use something else that's available. It's equally delicious and the guest never really knows we've had to make a change. But it was a couple of weeks ago before the cold snap that Dickie and I jumped in the van and headed down to Leeds to visit a farm who specialize in one of my favorite ingredients.
2: Looking forward to today, Tommy. I think it's going to be exciting visiting one of our uh, key suppliers.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm excited about it because I've never been here before. I can't wait to see what they do. Nestled to the south of Leeds and stretching across to Wakefield is an area of land renowned the world over, the Rhubarb Triangle. It all sounds a bit mysterious, But there's no little green men or unidentified objects here. Instead, it's actually the last place in the world where rhubarb is grown, en masse, using a technique which has been in use for well over a century. And it's so special that rhubarb grown here is in demand from chefs and kitchens all around the world. Uh, It feels kind of really special because this, this rhubarb is like very famous it's every chef in the country has it on his menu you see the boxes and like the iconic sort of red boxes of rhubarb and they get shipped all over the place it kind of feels quite cool to go to the actual place where it's where it's grown and oh. for it to be so sort of you know we're just coming up now it's, it's quite a humble sort of place you know it's a small shed by the looks of it yeah i think I, so yeah is that it we're, there we're pulled down here i think
2: yeah oh wow
1: Tomlinson's farm in Pudsey is where I get my rhubarb from. It's run by Robert, or Rhubarb Robert, as he's better known, and he told me I'd find him in the picking shed.
3: Now then, Robert. Alright, Tom, Lee, how are
1: you doing? Yeah, uh, well, Dickie's with me here today as well. Alright. I can't believe we, I mean, we've been working together for years and obviously bought tons of rhubarb, but I've never been here. I feel almost It's about bit... ten years, is it now? Yeah, I feel a bit guilty I've never been here. I want to see where the magic happens. Oh, well, you're a busy chap, are you? Well, you definitely are this time of year. <laughs> Typically, the forced rhubarb season runs from mid-January through until April, and this farm has been in the Tomlinson's family for over a century. How have your family been
3: doing this? Uh, we've been here since the 1880s. <laughs> so, my great-granddad Robert, my granddad Bernard, and my dad David, and then me.
1: Wow. So, you're the, you're the original, the OG?
3: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> My dad does
3: say uh, some of them are only been doing it window when it's because they're starting at 60s, you know.
1: <laughs> the picking shed is, well, it's a shed. There's a room at the back, which I'm guessing is where the rhubarb is growing, and there's just a pile after pile of yellow and red boxes being filled with the long rhubarb stems by Robert's wife, Paula. Will you pick it all by
3: hand? Yeah, every stick's picked one at a time by hand.
1: I'd last about five minutes doing it. <laughs> my back would be gone.
3: Yeah, I've been picking since six o'clock this morning. We'll probably get through about 40 tonnes this winter.
1: 40 tonnes. Pick by
3: hands, box by hands. Yep. How many of you are working? Two of us, just me and my wife, Paula.
0: No. The
3: day's on this now, yeah. We just can't get anyone to do it. But this is picked this morning, packed, goes out tonight. So really, it's a restaurant
1: tomorrow. So owning. Only- Kilos will you pick, like a few hundred kilos?
3: In a day? Yeah. Uh, anything from 60 to 100 boxes, so, you know, 600 kilos. Wow. But there's just there's no other way to do it, you know. No one's going to invent a machine because there's only nine growers.
1: That is what makes this truly unique and special, is I guess you're probably doing things in a way that were done by your great-grandfather in, like, the 1880s.
3: Yeah, pretty much. There's not a lot of change, to be honest.
1: But it's not the picking that I really want to see. I'm told this rhubarb is grown in complete darkness. But Robert has said he'll let us step inside and take a peek. So this is a bit I'm excited about, and I guess it's good that it's only audio, because I guess it's going to be quite dark in the rhubarb shed. It
3: is dark, yeah. It's, well, it's just a few candles which we harvest, use for harvesting.
1: How romantic. <laughs>
3: <laughs> right, come in like your, your eyes do adjust after about five minutes
1: wow every now and again there's a candle isn't there maybe every 10 yards and you see the yellow tops of the the leaves and then the, the pink stems going down but i mean there's just you're almost sitting the quiver because the candles are quivering they almost look like they're moving and growing there's there's proper atmosphere in here actually i don't think i've ever felt atmosphere in a growing sense like this you feel like there's energy they do say you can hear it growing.
3: As it first starts to pop through, you know it creaks and pops Yeah.
1: I thought Robert might have been joking. But in here, in this shed, I think he might be right. Did you hear the creaking over there? Yeah. That rhubarb just It creaking. was, yeah. It's it's nodding in approval. <laughs> anyway, it's time to get geeky. Time for a science lesson. The rhubarb here is what we call forced rhubarb. It spends two years outside absorbing energy into the root. Then in winter, Robert and his wife bring the roots inside to grow in the growing shed. A heater keeps the shed warm and tricks the rhubarb into thinking spring has sprung. But it's the lack of light which is what makes this truly special. Because the rhubarb is growing in complete darkness, there is no photosynthesis happening. And that means no chlorophyll which means all the sugar stays in the plant, creating a beautifully sweet stem, which is bright pink, and the tops are psychedelic yellow. I mean, this this shed, it's quite low, actually. The ceiling, it must only be seven foot high, the, the shed, and it's absolutely packed with rhubarb. I've honestly never seen anything like it. The shed goes on for what seems like miles. Coming here is like stepping back in time traditional processes making a great product. But Robert told me in the 70s and 80s that rhubarb fell out of favor. It wasn't fashionable. And from 200 forced rhubarb growers in Yorkshire, only nine of them actually survived. And it was a new variety with even more color, which put the product back on the menu in the 90s.
3: I think, to be fair, I've got to thank the chefs, really, tell telly, using it all the time. And then it, it gets more popular, Bring it back to fashion.
1: But you're a celebrity now <laughs> you are you're your are the first the first couple of days that your rhubarb is available <laughs> it's all you see on social media i mean my feed is maybe a bit biased because it's all chefs but like <laughs> you just see the red box you see the rhubarb and everyone's like, oh it's back it's back it's back robert's back and you see it on every tv show i watched tv this weekend chefs are cooking with it
3: yeah it does get about doesn't it I mean, we're picking some this morning that's going, actually going to New York. It'll be in New York on Thursday.
1: New York? Yep. Three Michelin-style restaurants in New York are shipping this rhubarb from this check. Tiny, tiny little place in Pudsey, yeah. Tiny shed in Pudsey. It makes me really proud to see a Yorkshire export getting on plates all around the world. And it's made me appreciate what's on my doorstep even more. As we head back north, I'm inspired to do even more with rhubarb than we've ever done before. Yeah, I feel like if we were in like France or Italy and we dropped in there, it would be like so much more talked about. Like that is a truly special place and like an amazing part of British food culture. It's
2: totally unique. It's so unique and it's so good to see it having a resurgence as well. Like he was saying, it's just, it's up to us as chefs to highlight it even more.
1: And I can't believe there's just the two of them doing it.
2: You would think looking at that from the outside, they would have had an army of like 10 or 20 people working on that. To pick it all by hand and yeah, it's amazing.
1: I've brought Dickie with me because he's always thinking about new ways to use ingredients. And sure enough, he's got a plan for the first batch of rhubarb. He wants to create a new drink to serve to our guests.
2: You know, we've always wanted to do like a sort of soft drink. The soft drinks pairing in the restaurant. Like, yeah. imagine if we like juice that, that amazing color and that like, citric freshness, and just get that into like a kombucha style drink. Um,
1: well, just a little light then, fer- light fermentation on it, and just get a nice yeah.
2: Just like four or five days, maybe, and like get a bit of like rosemary, a bit of anise hyssop, some like garden herbs. Yeah, I like, the color infused will be... into it. I just we need to try and capture that color as much as the flavor. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, we'll do we'll do a few little uh, experiments, and we get back to to the
1: motherland. Back at the Black Swan, we had a very special guest pay us a visit. The sort of guest I'm usually a little nervous and certainly suspicious about. You might know Jimmy Famoira as one of the regular guest judges on MasterChef. He's just launched a podcast all of his own about food and culture, but he makes me nervous because his day job is a food critic for the London Evening Standard.
0: I do feel like I am, like maybe a bit more of an urban creature, like traditionally. Like, you know, I sort of, you know, live in restaurants. I I ride my little fold up bike there. I sort of, you know, like I'm very much, you know, I've always kind of been that kind of character, it's, it's outside of my comfort zone, but it's something that I definitely <laughs> embrace more and more. I think we can take that to another level too. Amazing. <laughs> Can't wait.
1: Jimmy answered my invite because he wants to see behind the scenes of a true field-to-fork restaurant. But on a crisp, wintry afternoon, as we make our way through the farm, I think he's got the fear this might all be a ruse.
0: I mean, I'm fully expecting, you know, as a, as a restaurant critic to to come out into the middle of nowhere on the invitation of a chef who may have been, you know, tipped off by other chefs that I've upset and who may just be planning to leave me in the middle of nowhere. This just could be like a grand prank or punishment and, uh, you know, it'd probably be fair enough.
1: Hey, I'm not here to give critics a hard time. So long as they're fair, they're an integral part of the whole food landscape. And I'm keen to show this critic just how hard we work to get things perfect. But speaking of working hard, my dad has seen this as the perfect opportunity to put a Londoner, Jimmy, a little out of his comfort zone and get hands on with some of our cattle. Yeah.
0: Oh, hello. oh, hello. This is here my dad, is. TV. Hi. Tom. Jimmy, lovely Jimmy, to meet you. To see you. Yeah, how you doing? Oh, good, yes, perfect. How about you come over and see what we're doing over here and give me a hand, we're gonna go and feast. Yeah. And I'm definitely game, but I don't want to like ruin anything if you're giving me something with the training wheels on. Absolutely gorgeous.
1: We have 26 Dexter cattle on the farm at the moment. They're a small breed, little stumpy legs, only about four foot in height, some of them. And the ones in calf are about as wide as they are tall. They're quite a sight, but despite their lack of height, they need a lot of feeding. On our farm, they're entirely grass fed. Nothing else, no additives, no formulas, nothing to boost them up, just good old fashioned grass. I think it will make a difference to their flavour, so come rain or shine, these Dexters need a fresh helping of grass or hay in the winter. And today, that's Jimmy's job. We're just
3: going to roll this bale out,
1: okay. a bale of hay here. All right. And so what we tend to do is roll it away down the barrier and then the, the cattle will all come up to Yeah, it.
0: yeah. It How around. many of these will you get through as well? well one
1: a day it's not going the right way
0: oh right let's Come
1: just on. pull that off and get it started
2: now it should roll off if we're lucky oh yeah there we go look
0: at that oh it's a bit like rolling up a snowball but yeah, the other way it. around unrolling oh wow so all the way yeah this is my first time rolling out a hay bale. can you smell I'm it i'm sort of loving it yeah i can it's really sort of, smell it it's sort of sweet well when we get to the oh, end we'll have look, to. They're getting excited. Yeah, we'll have to if we can upend it <laughs> and then stepping to, in it. But I'm already thinking, you know, get a sideline in uh you know get people up here for fitness. Yeah. that's <laughs> it
3: when people say they go to the gym, I say, well oh, why don't you just do it away? work yeah. Oh
0: hello. So there is there's the barnyard or farmyard smells that you'd expect. I can really smell the hay, but it smells quite um. You know fresh like uh it's it's flying up the uh the cows are poking their heads through Oop, she's rocking you oh way. wow come out of it that's she's all <laughs> moving that one yeah wow okay
1: oh man <laughs>
3: so
0: they're all coming now and they're gonna munch on that yeah so i can really like i, I don't know like i think maybe You know, we're in close proximity to these gorgeous Dexter cows, they're poking their heads through, they're gorging, there's mooing going on in the background, but it all feels very like maybe people would have in their minds that the scent would be quite <laughs> pungent or off-putting but it all just feels quite like fresh and like nice to me like I don't know is this this is obviously all dried is, hay this and this is dried grass so it's hay uh, but dried it grass, has a slightly yeah. sweet smell almost a slightly, yeah. slightly slightly sweet molasses sort of yes yeah there's like but a that's sweetness just natu- that's just to the natural, fragrance of it
1: yeah. is this hay that I actually want Jimmy to pay special attention to be- because I'm going to use it a little later on when I cook him up a dessert
0: yeah, I mean, you know, I can sort of see why they're, uh, why they're going mad for it. Yeah. <laughs> it does smell quite... Yeah, it's really great to see.
1: With the cows fed, it's time to go inside. And while Jimmy cleans up, I want to tell you all about another one of my favourite ingredients. A key ingredient that comes from our farm. This episode is all about rhubarb, but as fine as I think that is, you can't serve it on its own. So my dish this week relies on another product to give it a lift honey honey is a great ingredient I'm lucky that we have some hives on in the farm so we we do have our own but I what I love about is the diversity it really does depend where the bees have been Um, I think that's a wonderful thing about when you travel around and you buy honey just you know you see it on the roadside don't you and you buy honey from different places and it really tastes of what the bees could forage from around there. So I think the wonderful thing is you can get these light floral flower honeys, but then you can get these deep heather honeys as well and the different uses you can use for them. You might turn to the honey jar for a dessert, but there's lots of other ways to use it too. I love to use honey in savoury dishes because when you want a little bit of sweetness, honey is not as sweet as adding just straight up sugar to it. And I think you add a little bit more depth from the honey. So whether it's roasting vegetables in honey or making like little pickling liquors or what we'd call like a gastrique, where you, you might want to, to make a beautiful little dressing to go on um, a salad leaf or to deglaze a, a sauce or something like that. I think it's a great way of adding depth and sweetness to savory cooking without simply adding sugar, which is quite one dimensional. And if that sounds a bit too complex, one simple idea needs no preparation at all. One of the things that I really love doing is serving it with cheese, um, because you know you have your chutney on a cheese board, but actually a lot of cheeses go very well with with honey, and it's not as sweet as you think, so like a chalky goat's cheese with a light honey is, is absolutely delicious. It's become quite trendy to put hot honey on things, and that's something I'm fully on board with. Hot honey has become a bit of a thing, and actually I love it. I go to a pizza place, uh, in Harrogate, uh, I'll give them a shout out, Pizza Social, and they do hot honey on their Bangers and Brock pizza and it is phenomenal. I think there's something about spicy food and sweetness that go together and in your on your palate but in your brain you're like, I just want to eat more of that. I definitely think that's something we should try this summer with some of our own honey and uh, some of the chilies that we grow on the farm. You could see it as a great accompaniment to, like, on top of a pizza or something like fried chicken where you want that sort of really Dirty flavour that's sort of sweet and spicy as well I think next time you drive down the road and someone's selling honey at the side of the road you should treat yourself It's that time of the show where we hear a couple of short adverts Please don't skip past as I'll be recommending some brilliant food brands which I think you might love But first a word from our sponsors I want to tell you about our series sponsor true foods if you've not checked out their website yet, then why not? Visit True Foods Limited and you'll find their range of fresh stocks and sauces, all available to be delivered straight to your door. Clearly, I love True Foods products and I use them myself and that's why I'm recommending them, but a little confession as well, I actually drink a flask of True Foods beef stock every day. It's my pack up. It's packed full of protein. It's so good for you. There's no added nasties, so not only do I cook with True Foods sauces, but I drink it too. If you're looking for a healthy option for your lunch as well as something amazing to cook with, I can't recommend True Foods highly enough. Listeners to this podcast can use code SEASON10 to get an introductory 10% off their first order. That's seasoned 10 for 10% off just for listening to this episode. So we've come to the part of the show where I talk about an amazing artisanal producer. Now, I think raw milk is just something you have to try. It's so different to the pasteurized, homogenized milk that you get in the shops. And there's an amazing website called getrawmilk.com. So if you go on getrawmilk.com and put in your postcode, it can tell you anywhere in the country where you can get raw milk from. Often these are on the actual farm themselves where they'll have like vending machines and you just go put a couple of coins in fill up your bottle and go away or they could be in in farm shops as well the milk tastes amazing it's super creamy it'll be different to, if you've never had it before it'll be a new food experience is different to anything you've ever tried but also you're buying direct from the farmer and supporting them which which is massive so a farmer might be able to sell you the milk through the vending machine and make 10 times as much money as they will selling it to a supermarket so we're cutting out the middleman and doing a really good thing but just a note on that though that it's not recommended to drink whilst pregnant check out getrawmilk.com it might change the whole way you think about milk hmm It's been a few days since our trip to Tomlinson's Rhubarb Farm and Dickie has been hard at work in his preservation station, using some of the delicious rhubarb to make a drink.
2: Following the trip to the rhubarb farm we, uh, we were thinking how can we capture the flavour and the colour of that amazing uh, uh, rhubarb so we thought something like, kind of like a fizzy rhubarb wine or something like that and then like coming back from there we were like what about a soft drinks pairing for the menu so we've been working on a rhubarb kombucha
1: to create this, Dickie has been trying out various combinations of dried herbs.
2: We've got a load of different dried herbs from the garden from last summer. So we've got you know, rosemary and it's hyssop. We've got some mint, lemon balm, lemon verbena, all of which are probably going to be pretty tasty. Um, so I think we're just going to get a few experiments on the go and see where we get to.
1: Leaping out is the rosemary, which complements the rhubarb flavour perfectly.
2: The rosemary especially, we've got a dish on at the minute in the restaurant using rhubarb and rosemary so we are kind of like, well that'll definitely go with that dish. And like I say, you kind of get that stem gingery flavour coming through from rosemary sometimes, so that was kind of the, the, like rhubarb and ginger is a classic combination, so that was kind of the thought on that. So going back to the beginning, we've juiced some of the beautiful vibrant red rhubarb uh, that we saw at the farm, Uh, and then we're basically, really simple process, we're just going to Uh, combine some of the rhubarb juice with a bit of water Uh, and then basically in this jar here we've got a symbiotic kombucha scoby as it's termed so that is all the natural yeasts and good bacteria that are going to allow the juice to ferment so we're going to take this uh, scoby out of here which doesn't look all that appealing if we're being totally honest and then we're going to drop that straight into this rhubarb juice and water concoction and then we'll basically just allow that to ferment at room temperature for a couple of days. It's not a massively quick process, but I guess uh, that's where the flavour develops. Things that take time always taste the best in my opinion, so...
1: The early experiments are looking and tasting good, but Dickie's not satisfied yet. He thinks the balance of flavours needs adjusting.
2: So it's got, obviously, a really vibrant colour. probably going to have to knock the percentage of rosemary down because it is pretty intense on the, the rosemary front but i think that was probably like 75 80% of the way towards what we what we're after so
1: i'm excited to try dicky's new concoction but right now i've got jimmy Famawira in the farmhouse and i've promised him a taste of what the black swan is all about
0: well, I hope you had some fun out on the farm. I did. Uh, I did <laughs> Almost too much fun. I'm going to quit it all and uh, come work with you guys. Oh well, I,
1: I, Hey, that sounds great. Well,
0: I should be careful saying that, shouldn't I? You'll be like, oh, we've got more work for you, actually. So, yeah. There's
1: always more work on the farm. <laughs> While we chat all things food, I'm also going to try and whip up a panna cotta with loads of lovely pink rhubarb. So this episode is all about rhubarb. So we've got this amazing yeah. Yorkshire rhubarb that we get from Tomlinson's farm in Pudsey. So in the rhubarb triangle, yeah, yeah. it's a really special ingredient. So I wanted to do something yeah. which sort of showcase that, but using ingredients that we've got yeah, we've yeah. got here. So I'm going to make like a, like a traditional sort of panna cotta using some of the Jersey milk. The milk we use is raw milk straight from our dairy cow. And it's such a delicious tasting product that I'd never go back to supermarket milk to cook with. So, half milk, half cream, Okay. and then in the oven I have roasted off some of the hay. Wow. So, toast that at a nice low temperature for about 20 minutes, and it just goes another level of sort of nutty. Oh my god, yeah,
0: Yeah. like there is a sort of biscuity, yes, biscuity, that's exactly what it is. is. What's the biscuit with the cow on it? <laughs> malted milk that's it malted milk biscuits do you know it totally what it is i used to love it. those
1: so uh, this this looks weird but that is all going in
0: there <coughs> i i did feel like i was in like one of my kids mud kitchens or something suddenly like you know
1: it looks alien right yeah it does and, and you yeah. give that a good sort of mushroom i mean it's about to turn into blue peter because obviously <laughs> I, I made one earlier <laughs> yeah. so uh, what i do is i'd heat that up yeah. leave it to infuse for a little bit Strain it right off and then warm up again and add the bloom gelatine. Right, it. right, so yeah, yeah. Just yeah. like a normal panna cotta, but the only difference being that I've put some dry grass. Right, in. right, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a delicious and simple pudding, which I'm sure you can make at home too. Hay is optional. We've already made a panna cotta made yesterday. It. So, obviously, with a panna cotta, it's set with gelatine. So, it would take mm. a, a few hours in the fridge. Mm. Um, so, I've got one wow. earlier,
0: which is nice. And is there. Wibble wobble. Yeah, it's got a very good wobble on it. Yeah, that'd be that'd go off on Instagram, definitely. Get a little <laughs> <own> video clip. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe we should get it's it. It's lovely, there. though. And I like that it's got um, a kind of biscuity kind of uh, ecru, beigey colour, like, you know, like sometimes you get those panna cottas that are very pale, snowy white, but it, yeah, it looks really lovely. Mm.
1: That's the the hay that's sort of infused yeah, into yeah, it, and yeah, uh, yeah it's, uh, it does have these sort of caramelly flavours, and uh, that's quite a nice colour, that, I think, yeah. like, I would have that as maybe a, a kitchen, kitchen cabinet <laughs> colour, you know? Yeah,
0: <laughs> lovely earth tones, yeah. What's this here? Is this like so it's a... It's just a little crumble. Just a little uh, crumble. it's like
1: a normal, you know, butter, flour, Amazing. sugar. But we've uh, put a little bit of meadow sweet, which is a wild flower, which we just dry,
0: which kind of, you'd probably find it in a lot of the hay anyway. Wow. This is incredibly good. This Have is very, very good. Maybe it's my, you know, little dip in my toe into the life of a farmer and I'm just like <laughs> absolutely really hungry because I did like about five minutes work, but it's really good. It's beautifully subtle and faint, but it's definitely got something in there. And it works really nicely with the rhubarb. It still has the sharpness to it as well, but it's beautifully sweetened. It's really good. And, can, and the rhubarb, we just cook that down and put a little yeah. splash of some rhubarb schnapps in it as well from last nice. year. Yeah. But I think
1: this is, obviously the food that we cook in the restaurants is very much more layered than, than mm. this. But I think sometimes if you just want to taste two or three ingredients. I like mm. celebrate rhubarb, milk, and well the hay that the cow yeah, eats yeah, in the milk. Yeah. It's three yeah. things, but they go well together and just a really simple pudding like that's sometimes the best way to showcase it. So the dish is a hit, which is a relief, but I'm interested to get to know more about Jimmy.
0: Obviously you like eating and you write yeah, that yeah, but yeah. do you enjoy yeah. cooking as well? I do, I really, really do. I um yeah, I I would say that like my love of food and interest in it definitely came from watching you know the cooking programs and chefs on TV and people like Jamie Oliver and the old clips yeah. of Keith Floyd and things like that and that kind of sparked my interest in figuring out how to make recipes. So I still really enjoy cooking and that's where it stems from. My works as a restaurant critic I love tasting things in restaurants and being sparked by something and thinking oh I want to try that I want to figure out how they did that and so yeah I feel like the two it's two sides of the same coin really for me I um uh, and, and yeah there's always that thing with with restaurant critics that I think I've said this before, it's like we're the kind of backseat drivers of like the food world. Like we kind of think we know, like, oh, they should have added this or they should have like seasoned that more. So I think there probably is a lot of, for a lot of us, there is that feeling of like maybe we're kind of frustrated cooks in our own uh, way. Yeah, maybe no, that's, that's it. Maybe that's I'm the not secret. sure. Every
1: restaurant critic could say that. Do you either? think? <laughs> maybe not. Maybe <laughs> not. Yeah. But, um <laughs> what about food, like culture and like growing up? Yeah. And, like, what What did you What did you have? Like, what yeah. You have?
0: Well, British Nigerian background, and you know, my mum is an amazing cook, like a really sort of natural, innate quite chaotic you know four or five pans on the go nice you know fry something else up or oh, we've got more guests coming around it was always quite you know joyful chaos in her little kitchen but um, a lot of Nigerian dishes things like jollof rice you know a lot mm. of we eat a lot of um, starchy tubers like there's a lot of yam there's things like fried plantain it's all quite like you know in its own way very rib sticking, belly filling stuff, like it's all, you know, a lot of um, starchy, uh, starchy accompaniments with really deeply flavoured sauces. And I think because of that, because because my mum's such a good cook, when I started cooking for myself, I was definitely drawn to quite classic British flavours mm. and things that, you know, I didn't necessarily grow up with, like, you know, in in that, probably in that same way that a lot of people, if you grew up with, Cottage pies and mm. traditional dishes like that—you probably gravitated more to <laughs> things that you sort of thought of as more exotic, and may- maybe there was for me there was an element <laughs> a of reverse. Like, oh like. wow, the, you know the exoticism of a of a cauliflower cheese or something <laughs> like—it sounds daft, but generally, yeah. I think like, I've carried that into like later life. Like I really, I, I I'm I really gravitate to a lot of those dishes, and I love you know in terms of. You know, as, as a critic, I love all sorts of food. I love, you know, you know, Southeast Asian flavors. And I, I really love Turkish food, actually. I really? love the Yeah. Yeah, I think particularly in London, we're really, you know, fortunate with, you know, Turkish and Greek food, especially. I know they're quite different, but like, you know, those kind of Mediterranean slash Middle Eastern, like Levantine flavors. And I really, really love that kind of mix of freshness with boldly spiced meats. But I also just really love traditional British food as well and I think and that's my kind of theory that maybe it comes from the fact that it, it wasn't something that, that was cooked a lot when I grew up and also when I was striking out, as a, uh, you know, cooking on my own as a kind of home cook and experimenting with stuff, that was something that my mum didn't necessarily do as much of, that was something that I could like kind of, you know, become expert at because I can't touch her when it comes to like jollof rice and those Nigerian dishes really.
1: The relationship between food and culture and how our food shapes us goes beyond his own experiences. Jimmy has even written a book about it.
0: I wrote a book, Settlers, Uh, it was about, um, it is about um, the black African diaspora and looking at that history and food's a part of that, but also looking at religion. Yeah you know things like education and and that kind of african diaspora influence that we see in all all sorts of walks of life at the moment whether it's music art politics it's it's kind of a background that a lot of brits share so i kind of wanted to dig into that modern history and yeah i think i i, I think actually writing the book was the culmination of a process of being increasingly more interested in my African heritage, Mm. and food was definitely part of that. And uh, in lockdown, and this is something that I wrote about, but in lockdown, because my mum would always look after my, I've got two young kids, and she'd look after them one day a week. And it'd be amazing because she would cook um, the Nigerian dishes that I grew up with. So I'd come, in from work and you know the house would smell like my childhood home. Like, that you know, stu- was that a, yeah, the stuff was that yeah, it was amazing. Like, you know, I'd go in and like, you know, there's you know, the smell of fried plantain and my mum's kind of cooking like, you know, the Scotch bonnet chili kind of stews and things like that. And yeah, the things that I grew up with. And so when when that wasn't possible during lockdown, when she, you know, when she was isolated, she was kind of living on her own. And so we started up a thing where I was trying to kind of learn to cook those dishes, which I'd always relied on her to cook for me. I'd kind of maybe dabbled a little bit here and there, but she was kind of, you know, giving me like pointers over Zoom and things like that. So that that was before the process of doing the book, but that was definitely when I started to kind of feel like, oh no, I kind of really want to... Learn how to make these dishes for myself.
1: I think you feel uh, an ownership towards them, sort of dishes, and certainly things that I think of from when I grew up—nostalgic sort of flavors. Mm. They mean that a bit more to you. Yeah, Actually, a bit yeah, more yeah. Pro- you're a bit more protective of them. Like yeah, if you're going yeah, to the yeah. effort to make in the dish that your, you know, your mum used to make, you're kind of—it's more an event, is yeah, isn't it, yeah, than, yeah, than, yeah, than just yeah, like you making tea. So, would you before them, would you, would your, your, kids, you wouldn't
0: have cooked? West African food, yeah, for them. yeah like Nigerian dishes. I probably, you know, I'd probably do a bit of jollof, and I would like, you know, fry plantain and, you know, kind of season things in a way that my mum would. But it definitely supercharged it. That kind of mm. the the pandemic and and them sort of really pining for those dishes. I felt like, oh god, yeah, I've got to like learn how to cook them and. It's important. It's important to learn those dishes, that like yeah. old family dishes, or, yeah, or
1: support other people who are doing interesting different yeah, things. Like yeah, like the rhubarb. Yeah, family, yeah, you know. Tomlinson's there. I think they're the only like original rhubarb growers right. who've yeah, never yeah, sort of yeah. stopped doing oh, that's it. That's fantastic. So yeah, you yeah. know,
0: it's that's part of culture and history. Yeah, um, yeah. And you must really feel cool. this, and this is something that I touched on in the book because there's an issue of like succession, isn't there? Like mm. you know, in terms of you know, you're an example of like keeping these traditions going and like but some people they grow up in that environment and they want to do something else. Or like, you know, and there is this there is this responsibility in my in researching and writing my book, I was looking specifically at, you know, African and Caribbean heritage shopkeepers or people that run sort of family restaurants and a lot of the time they were doing those jobs so that their children didn't have to so that they could kind of go and do something else but then you've got this really important community hub and source of these tastes and link to this history and lineage that's that's then a little bit fragile because you know you're not necessarily getting people carrying it on so yeah things like the the rhubarb and I and I, and I really love talking about these things uh, at the same time because I feel like they are so linked and maybe yeah. that gets lost sometimes and this is why we've got the a um, the, the, the podcast that I'm going to be hosting that is um, talking to people about their own immigrant heritage and their relationship to it and that, how that sits alongside their british heritage as well and kind of talking about the food that reminds them of that talking about the people the certain places and yeah it's kind of through the course of doing the book and just the kind of the things that i'm interested in writing about as a a restaurant critic as a journalist it's great to just keep that conversation going
1: one thing i wanted to know was how jimmy approached the idea of eating seasonally I mean, obviously, I'm very lucky that we've grown all our mm. own food and stuff. I'm always sort of fascinated. Like to be honest, the worst diet I have is when I come to London <laughs> because I don't know what to do.
0: I, have to, I don't know where to find food. Like where, where do you go? Where do you get yeah. your food from? Well, well, I've got in South London where I live. I, I live very close to an amazing butcher um, who also gets some amazing vegetables and produce in as well. We get a veg box, nice. um, like an organic veg box, which I really love. And is, is, is that kind of a relatively recent thing? Like maybe that's a bit of a post pandemic thing. Like before that, we'd go to supermarkets and, you know, very much shop in a traditional way. But I really love having the veg box. And uh, as, as a restaurant critic, I, r- I really enjoy like, just reading, just having a bit more of a sense of what's in season. So oh if God. you're getting a seasonal veg box all the time, that's mm. like
1: different stuff coming every. Yeah. If you could like have a magic clock and you could get something like say it was rhubarb, but you could have mm. it all year round. If you could apply that to one ingredient, what would you choose to have all year
0: round? Oh my God! Wow, that is that is really maybe because we're sort of vaguely in that time now. I am thinking, I'm thinking citrus. Like I kind of like really do love like you know all the kind of. Yeah, when you get kind of, you know, like, like beautiful Clementine yeah. or something like that. Like, I really love those. Blood oranges you get this Yeah, blood, your, oh, blood yeah. oranges. When they kind of arrive in the box or whatever, you're just like, oh my goodness, and you really look forward to them. Um, what else do I really, what else do I really love?
1: It's no surprise to me, with Jimmy being a critic, that there's a lot of ingredients on his favorites list. I was about to let Jimmy go, but then Dickie appeared with some of his kombucha, which he wants Jimmy to try. Now then. Oh Dicky. Oh hello. All right, all right. <laughs> Jimmy, this is Dickie. Hi nice Dickie. You. You're so right. Lovely doing? to meet
0: you, mate.
2: You You're right. So we just thought we'd uh, showcase one of the new products we've been working on. So this is a rhubarb kombucha using the rhubarb that we brought back from Puddy when we visited Tomlinson's last week. Nice colour. Yeah, it's really cool. So, that was one of the key things we were interested in sort of capturing was the colour initially. Gorgeous. We thought we'd uh, pour you a nice bit out and you can try
1: it. I'm so glad that he's made this because he's a master of fermentation. And <laughs> if I'd have made it, it might not be looking <laughs> so beautiful.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, that's lovely. It's
2: good,
0: isn't it? Yeah, really good. The
1: rosemary does come through, it, like, yeah, works. Yeah. it's a really nice botanical, in the way that like, you'd have gin and tonic. Yeah, and yeah, might, yeah. You could garnish that with a rose Yeah, that's frig. true. Yeah, yeah, that's a really nice yeah, drink if you were not drinking, definitely. So
2: guys, what do you reckon to the kombucha then?
1: Yeah, it's delicious. <laughs> do you reckon it's menu worthy? Menu. yeah yeah I think absolutely I think it's one of them things which is just got so much intrigue and interest to it and it's absolutely delicious so I think it'd be a lovely thing for our guest amazing yeah
0: yeah I think so it's, it's it's really appealing drinkable sweet you know like a lovely story behind it I like the idea of garnishing with the with the rosemary as well just to sort of underline that I would happily have another glass which is probably a good sign.
1: Fresh rhubarb will be on our menu for just a few weeks but it's sure to be a big hit with the diners and outside of the kitchen it will be the talk of the allotment growers and amateur chefs up and down the country and I hope everyone celebrates rhubarb for what it is a truly versatile ingredient that you can use in lots of different ways.
0: Jimmy thanks so much for coming up it's been a real pleasure to have you. Uh, Thanks for having me it's been absolutely amazing I uh, hope the cows recover from me <laughs> from me interacting with them uh, they're not scarred but yeah I've really loved so them as long as you're it. not scarred <laughs> um, I've really loved every minute of it and yeah thanks for having me on
1: next time we're going foraging with former topless Baker and now highly acclaimed pastry chef Matt Adlard for something altogether more savory
2: so if I've picked this but lost a stem if I just is that worthless to us no that's actually better because uh, it saves the chefs picking it down. In and the we're restaurant. confirming Matt has picked the correct. That is definitely wild garlic. Yes, there we go. Yeah, we've actually got the biggest leaf we've found so far. <laughs> oh, is, wow. Which is also good I news. I am a natural forager. You natural. are, definitely.
1: For more information about Seasoned, check out my website, www.tommybanks.co.uk, or check us out on social media. If you've enjoyed the episode, please leave us a positive rating and a review. It would mean an awful lot to me and it really helps to support us and get this podcast off the ground most importantly though tell your friends tell someone else you've enjoyed it maybe they'll join us on our journey too seasoned is a what's the story podcast it's hosted by me tommy banks and produced by daryl brown and sophie ellis